Hey, skeptics, it's Juliana here. Just letting you know that we're coming towards the end of the first season of The Skeptical Historian. My final episode for 2023 will be released on the 3rd of December, Australian Eastern Daylight Time. And I'll be taking the time off so I can spend the holidays with my family. But fear not. I'll be returning on the first Tuesday in January 2024 with season two of The Skeptical Historian. So have a great holiday and I'll see you in 2024. It's the evening of the 21st of October 1925 and three officers from the licensing branch of the Victoria Police are about to conduct a raid. The licensing branch is responsible for enforcing licensing laws which regulate the hours hotels can be open, who can and can't sell alcohol, and are also responsible for administering fines to individuals and establishments who openly flout these restrictions. To be honest, in 1925, that's everybody. But on this October night, the police aren't raiding a hotel that dared stay open after six. They're headed to Bell Street, Fitzroy, to an illegal brothel. It's full and nobody is happy to see the licensing branch, least of all the clients in various states of undress, many of whom have probably told their long-suffering wives they're just working late. But there's one client who doesn't seem too concerned at all. In fact, when officers burst in on him, he doesn't miss a beat. Completely naked, he hops right up out of bed, although I'm sure the officers wished he hadn't, and holds something out to the police who have probably just ruined his night. That's all right, boys, he says casually. I'm a plain clothes constable. Here's my badge. The licensing officers take a look. It is a police badge, that's for sure, but it doesn't belong to a plain clothes constable. It's badge 80. And it belongs to none other than the Chief Commissioner of Police, Thomas Blamey himself. <gasps> Within weeks, it's front page news. And Blamey, who has only been in the job for a little over a month, is facing down mounting calls for a public inquiry. The injustice of it makes him boil with rage. After all, there's already been an inquiry, an internal inquiry, that he headed that cleared him of any wrongdoing. And what's more, he has proof that his badge was stolen the night before someone flashed it at his offices at the brothel. What does he? I'm Juliana, and you're listening to The Skeptical Historian. Hello, my fellow skeptics. Thank you so much for tuning in. Before we move into today's episode, I would like to recognize the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, and Boonwurrung people on whose lands I am podcasting today. I acknowledge their long traditions, their laws, customs, and their ongoing and continuing connection to culture and country. Shout out also, of course, to Studio 4 at the State Library of Victoria, where this episode is being recorded. For more information or to book the studio yourself, please head to www.slv.vic.gov.au. That's statelibrarivictoria.vic.gov.au. 
The Badge 80 Affair, as this event became known, occurred not only at an awkward moment for Commissioner Blamey, but it was also rather inopportune for Victoria Police. Of course, there's probably no good time for the Chief Commissioner to allegedly be found wearing naught but his badge at an illegal brothel, but recent events had made it all the more problematic. To back up a bit, in 1923, just two years before, about a third of Victoria's police force, many of them ordinary beat constables, had gone on strike just before the opening of the Spring Racing Carnival, which was then and still is now one of the biggest weekends in the state. Compared to their counterparts in other states, Victoria police were poorly paid and they worked in shocking conditions. Single policemen were particularly hard hit. They were required to live in barracks where they were never really off duty. Then the only leisure activities allowed were playing dominoes or reading. Women were banned from entering the barracks, as were any visitors, and anyone heard conversing, even respectfully, about nationality, religion or party politics could be punished. The only way out of the barracks was to get married, but whenever police weren't on the beat, they had to be either in a station or in their barracks, so the chances of meeting someone special were slim. They could, of course, go out, but only if they wanted to risk getting caught and being disciplined. Many of these barracks were also not fit for habitation and were contributing to ill health among police officers. Some of the food served was so inedible that police regularly pooled their meagre wages to purchase proper meals for themselves or had to avail themselves to public soup kitchens and the bathroom facilities were completely inadequate. A later royal commission into the state of police barracks found that many men made the trek to the city baths on Swanston Street, regardless of where in Melbourne they were stationed, just to wash or to relieve themselves because the facilities provided at the barracks were unusual due to uncleanliness or disrepair, or in some cases they just didn't exist. Yes, in some cases, barracks built for police officers to live in had no bathroom or toilet facilities. However, This wasn't new, and it shouldn't have taken a royal commission. This had been known for a really long time, almost a decade, and absolutely nothing had been done. Those police and activists calling for change actually pointed out several times that it was only a matter of time before a barracks building collapsed while dozens of officers slept inside, but their concerns were continually ignored. Police conditions were not voting material. Police could vote. They'd been granted the vote in 1888. But the general public was not concerned with how they lived or the conditions that they lived in. These things didn't win elections, so generally politicians tended to just skip over them. Over and over again, police were told, there's just no money to fix your barracks. On the other hand, plenty of money could be found to fund the spring racing carnival and to jazz Melbourne up for the so-called celebration that stops a nation. Police were expected to play a leading role in crowd control and crime prevention while the good and the great gathered to drink and gamble and watch horses being tortured. It must have been especially galling for those single men trapped in barracks that were falling down around them to watch the government throw money at the Melbourne Cup like it grew on trees. 
But there were other demands too. Police were demanding the right to more annual leave. They were only allowed 17 days a year, which could not be taken over religious holidays, and increased pay. The starting pay for a constable was 7 shillings 6 pence per day, plus 6 pence as a rent allowance. Those in favour of keeping wages low argued that, given police were drawn from the labouring classes, they should be paid as such. But the labouring classes didn't have the same expenses as police, particularly they didn't have to buy and maintain their own uniforms for the most part. Out of that seven shillings six pence a day, a policeman had to purchase and maintain a uniform worth 12 pounds, which was equivalent to approximately six months wages. And he couldn't go and shop around either. He had to get it from the government supplier, which charged a premium. The other argument against low wages was that police were constantly at risk of harm or death on their job. While this was a problem for other labourers too, increasing unionisation in Australia meant that regular labouring work was becoming safer and legislation allowed for the prosecution of businessmen who cut corners when it came to safety and compelled changes to be made to benefit workers. A factory worker in the 1920s was highly unlikely to be crushed to death by a malfunctioning machine and could not be forced to work 15, 16, 17, 18 or 20 hour days. However, police in the 1920s were as likely as ever to be shot, stabbed, assaulted or even murdered on the beat. Given the new kinds of weapons available following World War I, it has been argued this danger was even more acute than before 1914, when these weapons were developed. Their other key demands were more constables, as they were so understaffed that sometimes one policeman had to cover two or three beats. They wanted a pension scheme for officers when they reached the compulsory retirement age, and the abolition of the barrack system for single men. Or, if that was too much, at the very least, they wanted livable quarters. Along with pay, the pension scheme was the biggest issue for police. There had been a police pension scheme, which was paid out in case of permanent incapacitation or when a policeman reached the compulsory retirement age of 60. In the event of an officer's death while on the job, his pension was paid out to his widow and children, or if he was unmarried, to his nominated next of kin. I am using he very deliberately here. The first women had joined Victoria Police in 1917 as police agents, they were called, and they weren't given the same powers as officers. But these police agents weren't entitled to a pension, and it wouldn't be until after the police strike in 1923 that women could officially become police officers and became entitled to a pension. So at this point... It is only men who are eligible and it is only the male police who are agitating for their pension to be restored. The police pension scheme was cut during the depression of the 1890s as a cost-saving measure and was then never reintroduced despite promises made during various elections to try and gain the police vote. Only those officers who had joined the force prior to the date the scheme was axed would be eligible for a pension on retirement. By 1923, there were few of those men left, and of the more than 600 men who went on strike, only two of them still had rights to a pension. The final issue that drove the police to strike in 1923 was the introduction of so-called special supervisors. These were four plainclothes men who were to go undercover and observe police behaviour on the beat, 
The then Chief Commissioner, a spectacularly conservative and incompetent man called Alexander Nicholson, claimed he'd done this because he'd observed policemen drinking in hotels while on their beats, resting under verandas, or speaking to members of the public who did not seem to require police assistance. Given the level of understaffing, with a single constable sometimes covering two or three beats of varying size, none of this behaviour surprises me. Police at the time wore heavy woolen uniforms, which were hugely uncomfortable in the summer heat, so it's no wonder they stopped in the shade every now and again, nor is it surprising that they might have called in at a hotel for a drink. Water was not readily available to an officer on the beat, whereas alcohol was in ready supply and publicans were usually only too happy to serve the local beat constable. It's also interesting to note that while Nicholson claimed police were drinking on the job, there are very few reports of police drunkenness at this time. To me, this lends weight to the idea that the reason the police were seen stopping at hotels was because they were thirsty, not because they were getting wasted. Also remember, this was a time when if you were thirsty, you were more likely to drink alcohol than water. Water was fairly safe to drink in Melbourne by this point, but there were plenty of people who'd grown up not being able to safely drink water and who remembered the horrors of dysentery and cholera and other waterborne diseases. So I'm really not surprised alcohol was still the go-to. Also, it was always there. There was a hotel on every corner in Melbourne at this point. Whereas public water fountains were rare, they also tended to be quite dirty, so people didn't readily drink from them. Of course, today this wouldn't happen, but today we also have readily available water for thirsty police officers, so they don't need to go to the local hotel. As for speaking to members of the public who didn't seem to require assistance, the whole point of beat police was to build rapport with the public. Crime didn't go up exponentially during this period, but Nicholson's decision to employ what his men saw as spies rather than employ the new constables they were asking for, was the last straw. Eventually, 636 men, most of them constables, were on strike and a wave of violence and looting was unleashed on Melbourne just as one of the most important events in the Victorian social calendar was about to begin. Those few police who were not striking were completely overwhelmed by crowds of looters, while the hotels merrily traded long into the night without a care in the world because there weren't enough detectives to stop them. Or, more correctly, there weren't enough constables to support the detectives who tried to order them to close. Two men were killed and hundreds were injured over two days until order was restored by none other than General Sir John Monash himself. Monash had been the commander of the Australian Imperial Force, or AIF, during the First World War and was one of the few competent men there in a war beset with idiocy and self-aggrandising senior officers. Monash was none of these things and he was empowered by a panicking parliament to set up a force of special constables with police powers and so many men volunteered that order was quickly restored. Monash later headed up the Royal Commission into the police strike which found that the strike could have been avoided if police pay and conditions had been improved prior and that all the improvements police had been asking for were reasonable. In fact, Monash's commission recommended that 
all the demands of the strikers be implemented, and by the end of 1923, wages had been raised, pensions reinstated, barracks repaired and properly fitted, and more police had been hired. The special supervisors had actually been dismissed before the strike occurred, but this wasn't actually communicated to the strikers by Nicholson because he was fearful that if he told the strikers this, he would be being seen to kowtow to the rabble. Had he been more forthcoming, the strike might have been prevented or at the very least postponed as it was these special investigators who were the final straw that broke the camel's back. Unfortunately, the police strike benefited everyone but the strikers, as it were. While the original terms of Monash's commission were to investigate the possibility of reinstatement of the strikers, a change in government during the Royal Commission removed this from the commission's terms of reference. It had been instituted under a Labour government and then a Conservative government came in and changed it up. None of the 636 strikers, many of whom were very experienced police who had had no other job but policing, were ever re-employed and those two men who had been entitled to their pensions never received them. While this suited the Conservative government, it was not popular at the time with the police, including those who had not gone on strike, or the public. It meant more police had to be hired to fill those vacancies, as well as extra men to fill out the force that had been depleted before the strike. This left Victoria Police dangerously inexperienced, and even the government knew it. The force of special constables, many who were actually ex-soldiers, who had been temporarily brought in to keep the peace, were retained for a further 12 months while the new police were trained, although relations between the two groups were never cordial. Nicholson was slammed by the Royal Commission for his actions, but the Conservative government refused to get rid of him and he remained as Chief Commissioner until Thomas Blamey was appointed on the 1st of September 1925. The appointment of Blamey had been one of Monash's recommendations and as Blamey himself was a Conservative general, friend of Sir John and had an excellent military record himself, at a time when such things were considered of supreme importance, he was offered the job. A little over six weeks after his appointment, he was found by the licensing branch enjoying himself in the illegal Fitzroy brothel. Or, at the very least, a man brandishing his badge was found there. I'm going to take a break here, and when I get back, we're going to put Blamey under investigation. And I'm back, but it'll take more than a magnifying glass to get to the bottom of this. As mentioned before the break, Thomas Blamey was appointed as Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police in 1925, about two years after the police strike. The wounds of this action were still quite fresh and nobody wanted a repeat. Conditions for police had improved significantly and new technology, such as the wireless, had brought positive changes to policing but it was still a generally conservative and reactionary establishment. Putting Blamey, who was a former army chief of staff, at the head of such an establishment was an interesting decision. Some historians have been kind and have called him a complex character, but I think a better description of Blamey would be that he was a bad man who happened to make some good decisions. He did push for his officers to be better paid, and set up a fund for police suffering financial hardship. At a time when there were only two women in Victoria Police, and 
quite a few people thought this was two women too many, he was unequivocally supportive of bringing in more women and expanding their role, giving them much the same powers as their male counterparts. He also threw his wholehearted support behind the budding wireless patrol, which was reshaping the way police worked, and for the first time introduced a bicycle patrol to respond quickly to disturbances. Blamey also was one of the first chief commissioners to begin to tackle the rising road toll. Motor cars had become popular in Victoria since their introduction earlier in the century and had also become more affordable. This meant there were more cars on the road and, unfortunately, this also meant there were more accidents, especially when those roads were filled with pedestrians, horse-drawn vehicles and bicycles, as well as motor cars, and the road safety rules were still being developed. Unlike many police at the time, Blamey saw potential in motor cars, but he was never quite able to convince the rest of the police force of their merit. However, he also saw the soaring road toll and felt that, contrary to community expectations that this was a problem the government needed to solve, that police actually had a role to play in reducing it. He introduced the first traffic patrol system in Victoria's history, and the road toll decreased significantly. However, despite all these good decisions, overall, Blaney was an autocrat who reserved both privileges and entitlements for his favourites, and demanded blind and unquestioning loyalty from his men. It was well known among the police that Blamey would look after them, just so long as they agreed with all his decisions and never asked so much as an innocent question. The fund he set up was a classic example of this. Despite it nominally being a fund for police in financial distress, Blamey operated it personally. If an officer applying for help from the fund wasn't one of Blamey's favourites, or he had any traits that Blamey found distasteful, such as a past history of voting for the Labour Party or being part of a temperance movement, the claim would be denied. There was also at least one occasion when Blamey authorised money be paid from the fund to a senior policeman and personal friend who needed money to cover his gambling debts. While this could be argued to be a form of financial hardship, it was not what the fund had really been set up for. Blamey also kept no official records, the ones we do have come from diaries and other personal sources, of how the fund operated, where the money came from, who it was being paid out to, and what applications were being approved or rejected, and on what grounds this was happening. For the various governments Blamey served under, this was a particular issue. Police were, and still are, public servants, and the governments wanted to see the books of the hardship fund to make sure it was being used appropriately. As Blamey knew full well, it was not being used appropriately, and it was effectively a slush fund, albeit one funded by private donations, that he used to buy loyalty from the police. He denied it was a form of bribery, but I really can't think of any other word to describe a fund that is nominally accessible to everyone in an organisation, but in reality is only for those who behave according to the dictates of the chief commissioner, even in their private lives. Blamey was also not squeamish about firing men who expressed even the most mild disagreement with his ideas, and in more than a few cases claimed their dismissal was a result of insubordination or gross misconduct, meaning many forfeited their pensions. 
When opportunities for promotion came up, despite having set up a system based on examinations and meritocracy, he regularly played favourites and gave positions to men he liked rather than the candidate who scored highest on the exams. He didn't believe in free press either and loathed journalists with a passion that, to be frank, was a bit unsettling. While plenty of powerful people disliked reporters, and plenty still dislike them today, Blamey was exceptional in his hatred. One of his first actions on taking power was to shut down the official police media office, which prevented journalists from getting comment on a case or seeking to speak to police about other matters of public interest. Blamey hoped that by closing the media office, he would not only prevent journalists from being able to report on police at all, but that it would also end criticism of him in the press. He was a notoriously thin-skinned man who hated any criticism, no matter how well-deserved. And while he could bully and bribe his men into silence, he couldn't stop the press from printing. This attempt to lock the media out, unsurprisingly, had the opposite effect and made them even more determined to get in. By removing legitimate channels for the media to speak to police and vice versa, leaks actually became more prevalent and the press began to feel, and not unreasonably either, that Blamey was attempting to remove any avenue for regular police to complain or air grievances. It was this stormy relationship with the press that would eventually be the undoing of Blamey, because no matter how hard he tried, he could never shut the newspapers down entirely. The other thing Blamey hated, perhaps even more than he hated the press, was communism, although, like most people of his time, he didn't really know what it was. While anti-communist sentiment is more often associated with the post-World War II era, there were a series of so-called Red Scares in the 1920s. The Russian Revolution in 1917 and then the catastrophic defeat of the British, American and French-backed forces during the Russian Civil War had shaken the foundations of 20th century society. At this point, 1925, Lenin had yet to publicly show his true colours as a murderous autocrat to the rest of the world, although it was very clear in Russia, of course. So many left-leaning societies and newspaper outlets were still hailing him as a working-class hero who had struck a blow for the people, despite the fact that he was neither working-class nor a hero. While the murder of the Romanovs in 1918 had dampened some public support for the Bolsheviks outside Russia, the Russian royal family had been so unpopular that some people just saw this as a good thing. What's more, there was also much more unrest about the decision by their own authorities, that is, authorities in Britain, Australia, New Zealand, America, France, etc., to participate in the Russian Civil War, often in secret, sending soldiers from Europe off to Russia without telling them where they were going or why, and involving them directly in a counter-revolution that many of them didn't support for many and varying reasons. I don't have time to go in-depth in this episode into the international reaction to the Russian Revolution and the Civil War, but it is a fascinating subject that I will be exploring another time. What is important to note when it comes to men like Blamey is that they feared a Russian-style revolution in their own countries without realising that the social conditions in places like Australia 
made such a thing very unlikely. Their antagonism was usually driven by fear that they might lose their privileged positions, and so they denigrated any left-wing movement as Bolshevik. In Victoria, for example, a strong trade union movement had existed since the early 19th century, but Blamey believed all unions were communist fronts. This is particularly ironic, given Australia's first unions not only predated the Russian Revolution, but predated communism as a political theory as well. Blamey's hate for trade unions would end in tragedy. During a dock workers' strike in 1928, he ordered police to fire into a crowd of demonstrators. Four men were injured and another man, who happened to be an AIF veteran who had served at Gallipoli and so was believed to be a National Australian hero, was killed. This was not the first time police had intervened in a strike, but it was the first time anyone had been killed. And it was also the first time there had been violence between police and strikers in the 20th century. In 1932, Blamey again set his men on demonstrators after declaring them to be communist sympathisers. 150 unemployed men who had lost their jobs due to the Depression marched along Flinders Street. While the dock workers' action had turned violent, both sides, of course, blamed the other, this action was peaceful. The demonstrators were not armed and the men intended to march to Parliament House and demonstrate there. Blamey ordered his senior officers to get the police to form up to block the protesters and when the demonstrators calmly refused to disperse and started looking for other ways to reach Parliament House, Blamey ordered a baton charge. (coughs) While no one was killed, several people were seriously wounded and the government was so appalled by what it saw as wanton police violence, quite rightly in this case, that they covered the legal expenses of all the men involved in the demonstration who later came before the courts. The press went on the attack too, savaging Blamey for his orders and the police for following them. It was the beginning of the end for Blamey. While he managed to weather these incidents, he was severely battered by the press and this just made him more determined to silence them. In turn the press became even more determined to keep publishing. It's hard to know if they were actively trying to tear him down or if Blamey's increasingly conservative policies regarding police interaction with the press drove the newspapers to believe he had something to hide. As it happened, he had plenty to hide and allegations of corruption, many of them substantial, dogged his last year of as chief commissioner and he was eventually forced to retire in disgrace in 1936. There were two catalysts that forced his hand. One was public, the other very much suppressed and I'll tell you all about them right after this break. And I'm back and I'm ready to take you back to the 22nd of May 1936 when the death knell sounded for Chief Commissioner Blamey. That night, Victoria's most senior detective, Superintendent John O'Connell Brophy, was shot three times while sitting in a car in Victoria's Royal Park. (coughs) Bullets pierced his right arm, his cheek and just above his heart, although luckily he survived. 
It might have ended there if Blamey and a group of senior police, including Brophy himself, hadn't given a false story to the press. They claimed that Brophy had been handling his gun when it had accidentally gone off and he'd shot himself just once and in the right forearm. For a right-handed gunman to shoot himself in the right forearm would require some serious contortion skills and the press didn't believe this story either. Blamey, Brophy and others then changed the story saying that Brophy had been at Royal Park on a stakeout due to a number of violent hold-ups which had recently occurred there. This last claim was true. There had actually been a spike in violent crime in the area. They also admitted that he'd been shot three times, although in this new story, the assailant was, in their words, a bandit. They declined to investigate or alert the press because they didn't want the man to know they were looking for him because if they did he'd be more likely to leave the state or flee overseas, they said. Now, I've never shot anyone, let alone Victoria's most senior detective, but if I had, I wouldn't be waiting for my name to appear in the paper before I hightailed it out of town. The police also declined to answer questions about why Brophy had been in the car alone on the stakeout and why he hadn't had any backup. Unsatisfied and smelling a rat, or two, The press continued to, well, press for information and the government began to suspect something was also amiss. Victoria had a conservative government at the time and such governments had generally backed Blamey, but only just. And to get anything done in the state, they needed the opposition to back them. Labour, who were the opposition at the time, were calling for a royal commission and I can understand why. Victoria's most senior detective had been shot and almost killed and the chief commissioner's response was, nothing to see here, move along people. It then got worse for Brophy because the press discovered that he'd been in the car with two women, neither of who was a policewoman. Brophy was married, as was one of his passengers, although not to each other, and I haven't been able to find much information about the second woman. After this discovery, the government could no longer ignore the opposition's calls for a royal commission and one was convened. The commission found that Blamey, Brophy and other senior police had been lying, surprise, surprise, although exactly what Brophy and his female companions were doing at Royal Park that night was never ascertained. It certainly wasn't a stakeout, nor was it likely to be any kind of official police business given his two passengers. The papers believed the liaison was sexual, and I admit this theory has merit, but I'm not going to damn anyone for having an affair without further evidence. Brophy claimed that he and his colleagues had lied to protect the reputations of the ladies in question, but the commission disagreed and found everyone had lied to try and protect the reputation of the police force. Blamey came out looking like a man who would rather dedicate police time and resources to a cover-up to protect a friend. The person who shot Brophy was never identified, nor was any investigation into the matter launched, then do his job. Then, while the Royal Commission into the shooting of Brophy and the behaviour of police in its aftermath was still sitting, another expose was published, and this would be the final straw for the embattled Blamey. 
A senior judge, having finally had enough of parades of injured civilians through his court who had been brutalised by police during interrogations, publicly denounced the police for using what he called third-degree tactics. For years, the rights of detainees had been ignored and police had been allowed to do whatever they felt like to get a confession if they picked someone for a crime. This often led to assaults and caused problems in court because judges often, and rightly, threw out confessions that had been made under duress and reprimanded police for using brutality in the first place. Many of these people then went on to successfully sue the police for assault, winning payouts and tying up police resources while the force tried to defend the practice and keep it under wraps. Sir Frederick Mann, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Victoria, made it all public in a blistering attack and laid the blame squarely at Blamey's feet. He was, after all, the Chief Commissioner, and ultimate responsibility lay with him. Ordinary Victorians, especially those who did not regularly have dealings with police, were horrified. Blamey was the only scalp from the fallout, and more than a few parliamentarians were delighted to see the back of him. Brophy, in no small part due to his expert detective skills, remained a policeman for the rest of his working life, and his part in a potential cover-up, albeit a very strange one, was never mentioned again. As for Blamey, he would have to wait until the Second World War to salvage his reputation. He returned to the army after leaving the police and served with distinction, although not without controversy, in the Pacific during World War II. He was made a field marshal in 1950 and died in 1951 and was buried with full military honours. By this point, if a few of you are wondering, what about the Badge 80 affair? I don't blame you. I do seem to have gone on a rather meandering path, don't I? I think the Badge 80 affair is a much more interesting story if you know more about Blamey. Remember, when the Badge 80 affair happened, he'd only been Chief Commissioner for seven weeks, and the police had recently been overhauled after a strike that had laid bare years of government neglect. Blamey came through the affair by the skin of his teeth and it haunted him throughout his 11 years as Chief Commissioner as the scandals began to pile up. But let's wind the clock back to 1925 now. To the night, the licensing squad burst into the brothel to find Blamey, or at the very least, his badge, in the illegal establishment. As we've already ascertained, Blamey was a controversial man who was no stranger to scandal although he entered the police force with an excellent reputation. But given that the Badge 80 affair happened so early in his career, it really should have been the death knell for it, and he should have been hurriedly replaced by the many other men who had potentially been in line for the job. That he wasn't fired was down to the backing of a conservative government that, unlike the one which would eventually oust him in 1936, didn't need the opposition's support. Given the instability in the police, the government at the time wouldn't hear of making any changes and glossed over the Badge 80 affair, saying that they were satisfied someone else had stolen Blamey's badge. This was Blamey's story too. 
He said that his badge had gone missing the day before the raid and he'd found it in his letterbox three days later as the scandal was slowly beginning to unfold. An internal investigation, headed by Blamey himself, found that an unknown person had stolen it and used it at the brothel, but he was never identified and no one was ever charged. Blamey said that he was satisfied with the outcome, which of course he was, and refused to endorse any further investigations. This short and sweet, quote-unquote, investigation was largely derided as a whitewash, but is it possible? Could someone else have nabbed Blamey's badge and taken it off to a brothel? I'm hearing echoes of the missing mace here, and I must confess myself equally unconvinced. Of course, unlike the mace, Blamey's badge was almost certainly in the brothel, Why steal something so easily identifiable only to flash it about? While Blamey was new on the job, everyone knew full well that Badge 80 was the chief commissioner's. Also, who stole it, if indeed it was stolen at all? Given Blamey said the badge had been taken from his office at police headquarters, the thief would have had to have been another policeman, and they wouldn't have had to steal Blamey's badge. They could have used their own and told the licensing branch the same story. I am a plainclothes constable. What makes the story of a theft even more unlikely is that Blamey wasn't a constable. He was the chief commissioner and his badge identified him so. If a thief was trying to pull the wool over the eyes of the licensing branch, he was destined to fail. As we've already established, they'd recognise the badge... Also, let's be honest here, there's not a lot someone could do with Blamey's badge, even if they did steal it. It's not like anyone would know the licensing branch was going to be raiding that brothel on that very evening. Blamey's appointment had been announced in a photo of him published, probably to his great disgust, in all the major papers, so he was already well-known and had a larger-than-life reputation due to his war service. What I'm trying to say here is he was known and identifiable. His badge would have been worthless to anyone but himself. Also, if someone wanted to embarrass Blamey, there were far more damaging ways to do that than to steal his badge and go out for the night to a brothel. The licensing branch didn't raid every night, and even if they had seen Blamey in the brothel, They weren't going to tell anyone about it, let alone the press. They'd be sacked without pensions too and would probably never work again. All things considered, the story of the stolen badge just doesn't make sense to me. So does that mean Blamey was there that night? Well, not necessarily. I'll explain a little more after I get back from this break. And we're back, but was Blamey at the brothel back in 1925? That's the million-dollar question. It's actually hard to tell. As we've already ascertained, someone waving his badge around was there, and it's almost certain that the badge wasn't stolen, but does that mean he was there? It's possible. And it would very much be in Blamey's character. When he was appointed as Chief Commissioner, a planned commission into Victoria's extraordinarily lax enforcement of licensing laws was scrapped 
as it was believed that a man such as Blaney would be just the man to whip the force into shape and get those pubs closing on time. At the time, licensing laws required pubs, hotels, bars and other licensed venues to close at six and banned the sale of alcohol on Sundays. This six o'clock closure had been introduced as a wartime austerity measure and temperance and morality groups had lobbied governments to keep it when the war ended in 1918. They argued it would reduce drunkenness, encourage upright behaviour and increase attendance at religious services. You will be unsurprised to hear that this argument was about as steady as a punter at the open bar on Cup Day. Most venues closed their front doors at six, but it was still possible to buy a drink by going to the back door, usually at a 50% markup. And many families brought cases of alcohol from the local pub quite legally, which they then sold illegally from their homes on Sundays. Bottle shops also did a roaring trade as they were not licensed venues and could stay open until between 10 and 11 o'clock every day except Sunday. Despite all the yelling from those opposed to anyone having even one drink, it was plain that the licensing laws were not working. Blamey hated licensing laws too and saw nothing wrong with having a drink at the bar after work or on the weekend without having to rush out the door at six. This is perfectly reasonable and was much more in line with community expectations at the time. But Blamey felt, as police chief, he had to enforce the law, even if he didn't like it. Unless enforcing the law was going to affect him. He was well known for openly flouting the license laws and was a regular customer in bars and hotels across Melbourne. He would let the licensing branch know where he was going to be drinking on any given night so they didn't raid the place and embarrass him. However, if he wasn't drinking somewhere, it was open season. He didn't care where the licensing branch was raiding as long as it wasn't where he was drinking. It would be completely within his character for him to go and spend the night at an illegal brothel come sly grog shop, yet given his habit of telling the licensing branch where he was going to be to avoid embarrassment, I can't imagine him forgetting to do so in this instance. Of course, he may have taken a calculated risk. After all, the chances of the licensing branch coming to the brothel were very slim. But why risk the embarrassment of being caught, as ended up happening? The licensing branch consistently looked the other way when Blamey was out drinking past closing time. And if they didn't, he could have had their careers faster than you can say, another round! The three detectives who conducted the raid, the sex worker who was with Blamey, or the man with his badge at least, and the brothel madam all denied that Blamey was the man who had flashed his badge and much else besides during the raid. And Blamey himself provided an alibi for the time in question. However, given Blamey held the detectives' careers in his hands, they were hardly going to admit seeing him there. Although I think in this instance, they were telling the truth. This has nothing to do with them and everything to do with Blamey, who was happy to flout the law but took steps to avoid being caught doing so. The fact that he didn't tell the licensing branch detectives to steer clear of Bell Street that night would have been very out of character if he was planning to head there. Which leaves a third possibility. If Blamey's badge wasn't stolen, 
and he also wasn't at the brothel that night, did he give his badge to a friend? This might seem incredibly reckless, not to mention illegal, but it's not just idle speculation. As the scandal was unfolding and Blamey was insisting that his badge had been stolen, this version of events was disputed by Deputy Commissioner Daniel Leinen. Blamey said his badge had been stolen the night before the raid on the brothel, but Leinen said he'd seen it on Blamey's desk that very evening, just seven hours before the raid. Had Leinen been a younger man with a shot at Blamey's job, I might be tempted to believe he was lying, but he actually had no reason to. He was less than a month away from his 60th birthday and, with it, compulsory retirement. The government, still backing Blamey at this point, accused Leinen of disloyalty, but he stuck fast to his story. He'd seen that badge and Blamey hadn't reported it stolen until it turned up at the brothel. However, the only story investigated was Blamey's claim, and the matter was taken no further than that. Leinen reached pension age before the investigation, which, as we've already discovered, was a joke and a complete whitewash, and retired, and his statement was happily forgotten. Or almost forgotten. In 1954, after the deaths of both Blamey and Leinen, Blamey's biographer John Hetherington gave Leinen's claim new weight. He said that Blamey had privately admitted to a friend in the 1930s, just before his career imploded, that he'd made up the story of his badge being stolen because he'd given it to a friend. The man was an old army buddy from the First World War who had come down to Sydney to visit Blamey, and Blamey hadn't wanted to implicate him in a scandal because he was a married father of three. This certainly feels more likely than Blamey's badge being mysteriously stolen and then returned, and it would be in Blamey's character to lie to protect a friend, even if it meant embroiling the police force he was responsible for in a scandal. But there are a few holes. The part of this story I find hardest to swallow is this. If the badge was supposed to offer some kind of protection... Why did Blamey hand over his badge and not a different police badge? It was bound to attract attention if it was discovered and Blamey would have known this. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if his friend, after a couple of drinks, decided that a night at a brothel was just the ticket. But even if he told Blamey he was heading off to Bell Street, which was a very well-known red light district, although not quite as notorious as Little Lon... There was no reason for Blamey to hand over his badge, much less tell his friend to use it if the licensing branch came to call. There were dozens of hotels in Melbourne for them to raid and probably hundreds of sly grog shops and brothels. Nobody could have suspected that they'd turn up in Bell Street that night. Although it has been suggested that Blamey knew the raid was happening, but if this was the case... Why wouldn't he just tell his friend to go elsewhere? There was no shortage of brothels in Melbourne in 1925. If the badge was supposed to act as a shield from scrutiny, then it failed spectacularly. Although the element of bad luck here can't be overstated. There would have been no scandal if the licensing branch hadn't come to call. 
Which makes me wonder if the badge was ever meant to head the police off at all. As Victoria's top cop, Blamey would have known the best brothels in Melbourne, especially those that sold sly grog, as he probably frequented them. While the chief commissioner heading out to the brothel for an evening might have put him at risk of blackmail, who were the authorities going to believe if any report was made? A madame and her employee? Or the chief commissioner of police? I think we all know the answer to that question. So perhaps, just perhaps, Blamey gave his friend the badge, not as a way to head police off should they come calling but to ensure the friend got the best service at the brothel. Keeping the chief commissioner on side would have been beneficial for any madame as it reduced the likelihood of raids and arrests and meant clients were more likely to return. Anyone walking into a brothel and flashing badge 80, even if they very obviously weren't blamey, would have got top-notch treatment for the night. This idea also starts to make more sense when you consider the actions of the man who presented Badge 80 to the licensing branch during the raid. Assuming it was Blamey's married friend who was there, he would have had every reason to avoid being caught. While it was sex workers who got arrested under the anti-solicitation laws of the time, Clients would often find their names in the paper over the following days, which was extremely embarrassing and had the potential to blow up careers and marriages and result in social isolation. Once more, assuming Blamey's friend had been given the badge to get special treatment, he might have thought flashing it at the officers and saying he was a plainclothes constable would get them to leave. Being an army man from Sydney... He wouldn't know that each police officer's badge had a unique number or that they could be identified or that everyone in Melbourne knew that badge 80 was Blamey's. The licensing branch would have known immediately that he was lying, but that badge that might just have got him some special treatment at the brothel certainly got him special treatment from the licensing branch. They weren't prepared to press for an investigation into anybody close enough to the chief commissioner to be carrying his badge, knowing that Blamey would end their careers without hesitation if they did so. So, looking at everything, here's my theory of what happened during the Badge 80 affair. (laughs) Blamey meets up with his old army friend and they go out for drinks with Blamey telling the licensing branch which hotel they'll be at so they don't get raided. Blamey's friend decides to spend a night on the town and Blamey gives him his badge and possibly recommends a good spot and tells him to use it to get the best service when he gets there. Unknown to Blamey, the licensing branch have decided to leave the hotels alone tonight and instead are going to raid a brothel suspected to be doubling as a sly grog shop. They come spilling through the doors of the Bell Street brothel and into the bedrooms where they encounter Blamey's old friend. Quick as a whip and knowing the potential public humiliation that will follow if he's caught, the friend pulls out Blamey's badge and makes up what he thinks is an innocent and believable story, never expecting it will find its way into the papers. By the time the badge 80 affair is exposed, he's back in Sydney with his wife and children and no one is any the wiser. Blamey himself, true to fashion, refuses to tell the truth 
and has enough friends in government to make the whole issue blow over at least until his next scandal rears its ugly head. In many ways, compared to the other scandals that dodged his career, the Badge 80 affair is a small thing, but it really set the tone for Blamey's time as Chief Commissioner. He wasn't exactly corrupt, but he wasn't fair either, and he put personal loyalty first, even when it meant embarrassing the police force he was responsible for. His predilection to tell improbable lies in an attempt to protect people, though, eventually caught up with him. As we saw in the shooting of Detective Brophy, Blamey's foolish attempt to shut down speculation about Brophy's behaviour led to his own downfall. He was too caught up, I think, at that point in the early years of his time as commissioner, when the government had backed him to the hilt and had been prepared to swallow his stories, no matter how stupid they were. But times changed, attitudes moved on, and Blamey couldn't move with them. For all the good he did in the early days of his time at Victoria Police, his reputation was really too marred by scandal, lies and violence for him to go down in history as a good commissioner. I think I return full circle here. The best way I can describe Blamey is as a bad man who happened to make some good decisions early on. As for Badge 80, well, if you're curious, you can go and see it yourself. It's on permanent display at the Victoria Police Museum at 313 Spencer Street. In fact, perhaps the most unfortunate fact in this whole episode is that Badge 80 itself, like any inanimate object, is mute, so can't tell us who was waving it around at the brothel that night. Of all the potential witnesses in this case, I'm of the opinion that the badge, were it able to speak, would be the most honest of them all. And that's all I have for you today. Thank you so very, very much for listening. As always, you can get in touch with me at my website. That is www.skepticalhistory.com. That's skeptical with a K. Or via social media. I am Juliana Byers on both LinkedIn and Instagram. Let me know you're a listener if you are sending me a message on either platform. Join me next episode for another sceptical take on the mystery that is history and tune in wherever you get your favourite shows. See you next time. The Sceptical Historian is researched, produced and hosted by me, Juliana Byers. You can find a full list of resources used in researching by going to my website and clicking on Sources. Sound effects are by Adobe Creative Cloud, Pixabay and Epidemic Sound, used under the appropriate licence. The music track The Whistle Funk by Telsonic was also used under the appropriate license. Podcast hosting is by RSS.com. See you next time, skeptics. <laughs> <laughs>